Now, if you think about watchers, let's just think about the, the little bit that we've sketched out here. If they are, again, a higher status than others in the heavenly bureaucracy, if they indeed are part of a class that makes decisions, then the reasoning would go that this class might know things that other members of the heavenly host don't. In other words, there's, there's a, a question of knowledge here. That, again, becomes sort of significant because in Akkadian, which if you're a Semitic you know, philologist, this is my training, the precursor to Aramaic in Babylon was Akkadian. And the Akkadian term there for those who watch is matzare, which again, curiously enough, is a term that is used as a label for figurines of guess who? The Apkalu. And the Apkalu are the Mesopotamian equivalent of the sons of God in Genesis 6 that committed the transgression with women before the flood, the whole thing. So there's actually a very discernible sort of linguistic connection between all of these things, all of these terms. And I find it interesting at least, again, we don't want to spend too much time on the evil guys, but when we think about, hey, how in the world does, you know, does the New Testament and the intertestamental literature, how do they sort of pick up on the idea that before the flood, one of the sins of the sons of God wasn't just the woman thing, but it was transmitting knowledge to humans that they should not have? Well, the answer to that is this terminological link. Uh, again, this inner circle, having greater knowledge. And then you're not supposed to dispense that to people unless you're told to go and do that particular thing. So that is actually part of the transgression. The example of the Apkalu, you know, takes us into the bigger question of, you know, the relationship of biblical material to other ancient material. Now, if you go out on the wild world of the internet, you're gonna see things and hear things like, oh, the stuff in the Bible, the biblical writers didn't have any original thoughts, they just stole stuff from ancient literature. That is pretty ridiculous. I mean, what's going on is, is a lot more normal, a lot more human. God picks humans to write scripture. Again, what could be more obvious? Humans live in places. They live at certain times in certain regions. And guess what? They're not in monasteries. They're not hermits. They interact with other people. They are literate. They read books. They engage in conversations. The places where they live have trade with other parts of their world regionally. And so that's one reason why you have you know, one culture writing their version of whatever it is that, that happened or, or how they answer the questions about the spiritual world and then another culture doing the same thing. People are interacting and they're reading this stuff. There's a regional proximity that is the reason for similarity. If you grow up in a region, then you're gonna have shared worldview to some extent. You're gonna have shared culture to some extent. In other words, this should be the least surprising thing in the world when it comes to looking at the Bible. This is what it means to read the Bible in its own context, really its own contexts, because the biblical writers were part of a world. They, they lived somewhere and they had this interaction. There's no coherence or even proof that 
a biblical writer is like, man, I want to finish this book, I want to write this paragraph, but I can't think, so what's the next thing I can steal? There is no sort of chain of goes from tablet to text to this other text you know, before it gets to the New Testament writer. Uh, they're not passing things on. They're not using Federal Express. You know, I got to mail this to John so he can finish the book of Revelation because, again, he can't think any independent thoughts. I mean, this is the kind of absurdity that you see in sort of, you, know, you get from the village atheist uh, who, who really isn't thinking at all about what it means to be a person living in the ancient world and reading material. And then again, in our, in our view, by the providence of God being prepared intellectually and just in terms of life experiences to produce a piece of writing that God will preserve for the believing community. Uh, this is just how it works in, in the real world and real life. It's the most normal thing that you can imagine. One of the more noticeable functions of the heavenly host is that they serve, at least a number of them serve as God's warriors, soldiers. The scripture uses military or army imagery and terminology. The members of the heavenly host get the label in certain passages of giborim. These are warriors, all right? The Lord himself is called, you know, Adonai Tsevaot. Okay, the, usually translated the Lord of hosts, but it actually is the Lord of armies. Okay, and so the reference is that God is himself a warrior. He fights to judge evil. He fights on behalf of his people. And with him is this army, again, this entourage of the heavenly hosts. So we get this militaristic language to convey the idea that God will and does intervene on behalf of his people on earth to fight on their behalf. We have to remember that warrior language, army language, you know, this, this, again, soldier language of the Old Testament. This is yet another task, okay? This isn't something that, you know, God creates an angel and, you know, he, when he pops into existence, you know, he's a trained militarist, okay? This is a function, this is a service that on occasion, God will intervene and act and so on and so forth. Now, we, we can look at it and say it's a really useful metaphor, and it is, again, to communicate the idea of spiritual conflict or even, again, God intervening on behalf of his people on earth who are faced with their own earthly military enemies. It's the idea that, that when this conflict is going on on earth, there is also conflict in heaven, but there's also spiritual input into the outcome of whatever this conflict is. And the best way that you, you convey that is to use military language. I mean, this is what it is. It, it mirrors what's going on on earth. You know, we have this heaven and earth, you know, symbiosis going on again. But we shouldn't, you know, draw from that that, like, every angel is just sort of born, if I can use that term, uh, born a warrior. Again, this is a function that has a context and there are some very specific passages related to it. Cherubim and seraphim are words that most English Bible readers are going to be familiar with as they're transliterated, they're not translated. So they appear in the English Bible sort of, you know, for what they are. And we sort of don't stop to think about these two as job descriptions. Again, we're not tuned into the nuancing of vocabulary, which is really why I, I jump into it right away in the book. 
This is actually where we get the idea that angels have wings because cherubim have wings and seraphim have wings and they're all just angels anyway. In other words, we smash all the terms together and that gives rise to this myth about angels having wings. So it, it becomes sort of more than a metaphor for us as moderns. This is just the way we, we think of them. It, it, we don't look at, at pictures of angels and think, oh, think, oh that, that, that's just a metaphor for, oh, they come from above. No, we actually do think of angels this way. And it works its way into pop culture uh, in all sorts of movies and whatnot. So this is actually what it derives from. But cherubim and seraphim, again, these are bucket three terms. These are job descriptions. They, they, they are terms that are drawn from respectively. Cherubim comes from Akkadian. Seraphim is actually Egyptian, and it refers to a throne guardian. Now, there will be those who say, well, seraph, that means to burn, so it's burning ones or luminous ones or something like that. Again, in the book, I go into the details of the scholarship on this, but it's actually a term both in Hebrew and, you know, in, in Egyptian. And in Hebrew, saraf is, is a serpent, is a snake. And you say, well, that, that's just kind of weird. Again, don't think of Genesis 3 because, you know, we're, we're not in Genesis 3. We're in passages like Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, but in Egypt, the serpent, again, think of the Pharaoh's headdress. In Egyptian thought, the Saraf, the seraph, again, depending on your pronunciation, is going to be a supernatural throne guardian. Again, this is just the way it's depicted. So the imagery, again, is consistent with a word like cherub. You know, cherubim, seraphim, uh, they're really referring to the same sort of job. We protect sacred space. And you say, well, does God need protection? Is he fearful? No, that, that isn't the idea at all. The idea is that we're using this terminology to tell you that there are members of the heavenly host who actively try to keep God's presence from being defiled. I mean, we do this on earth as well in, in, in the Old Testament. Okay, there were rules about where you could walk and you couldn't in the tabernacle and the temple and sacred space on earth. The same idea is resident you know, also in the heavens. And so to communicate the idea that God's where God is has to be protected from people like you like when the prophet is transported into the throne room of God, he has to be purified. He has to be made fit for sacred space. Uh, so that, that's their job. This is what they do. They protect God's presence from defilement, from anything lesser. So when we talk about words like cherubim and seraphim, again, we have to realize that what the writers are doing is they're using something common in their world that their audience will know visually. And they're using that as a metaphor to describe a function of something going on in the spiritual world. So it's very easy to read something like Ezekiel and oh, we've got cherubim with four heads and lots of eyes on their body and wings and, and literalize it. To, and, and you have a lot of people that think, well, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna see one of the, like, like, like there's an actual critter that maybe needs to visit the veterinarian, you know, if you, <laughs> just to stay healthy. No, it, the, the point is not that there are actually critters like this somewhere. The point is that the biblical writers are using, again, the things of their experience. People you know, who were in exile, for example, are going to be used to seeing royal imagery, royal iconography, statues, carvings of, of 
divine thrones or royal thrones that have the winged bull, the winged lion, and all this sort of stuff. They're going to be used to seeing that, and they know what it means. We're in the presence of royalty, or this denotes where the king sits. Okay, this is the king's space. It's not our space. You don't just run up to him and say hi. Uh, it's, it's kind of, we, we still have a, a little bit of these sorts of trappings like in, in the UK, like with the queen. You're not supposed to touch the queen. You, know, you don't get near the queen, and she's got you know, people to protect her. You know, in, in her case, it really is a legitimate you know, issue. It could be in terms of protection, but it's also an issue of protocol. You don't touch the queen. Even when, when someone shakes her hand, it's a controversy because you don't touch the queen. Well, it's the same uh, you know, way in the ancient world. They had ways of telegraphing to people. This is space where you don't belong, and it's protected. Again, uh, in, the, in the earthly world, you would have had you know, soldiers accompanying with this. They would have been wearing certain things. But it's also communicated with these pictures of what the king's throne looks like. And again, the royal symbols of power and presence. Well, the biblical writers take this and they use it analogously for the heavenly world to describe that when you're in God's throne room, okay, that is a place that's protected from defilement, from invaders, from people who don't belong there. And even when they're summoned, like the prophet, they have to be purified and made acceptable to occupy that space. And so the, the imagery sort of accomplishes what the writer is trying to communicate. Now, what's interesting about the terminology is you get it in certain passages, like Ezekiel 28, where we have a reference to the anointed cherub, you know, who covers and so on and so forth. It's, it, the, the language is kind of odd there, but that's important because that figure is connected with Eden and its rebellion. And so some scholars have theorized that the being from the heavenly host who decided that he wanted autonomy, wanted to call the shots, wanted to run the show and eliminate humanity and whatnot, was actually a being that had close proximity to God, again, protecting God's sacred space. And, and there is some sense to that, because if we understand Eden as being the place where God lives, it's God's house, essentially, and where God lives, he also conducts business. It's where his entourage is and his, you know, where they have the board meetings and, and all that sort of stuff. You would have a being that, again, Eve, Adam and Eve, since they live in God's house as well, Eden, that they may have been familiar with these spiritual beings and their role. And one of them steps up to Eve plotting against her. So there, there is something to be said for recognizing that this terminology denotes a spiritual being that, yes, has a task, but also with that task had really close proximity to God.